Before we jump in, a couple of few, I got a couple of few things. Um, first of all, if you're following along in the Lent devotion, I was raised Catholic, as some of you know, and if you really look at your calendar, there are 46 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. So if you've been reading every morning, it's not the Catholic way. There are only 40 of them, so you get Sunday off. So just in case, tomorrow, my brother Keenan here has written about the 17th Psalm. That's your day tomorrow. So we'll get that out of the way. Um, now, if you haven't taken advantage of the Right Now Media app or that login, please do it. I got a screen coming up here. There's a sign-on, which you see that little circle. Sign on, and then whether you're in the app or on a computer, there's this icon that will bring you to this page. And this is a feature that is in Right Now Media. This is, we found out about this this week, and it's really awesome. It's where we'll be going to be able to have pastoral um, suggestions for you that is, gives you some options other than the garbage media that we have to ingest pretty much all the time. So the reason I'm highlighting this is David Platt, who you just saw in that video earlier, he, in, in this particular study, the second session, don't do it now, would really complement today's sermon. It really wouldn't. He does it in nine minutes, and obviously I won't. So, last thing. We here at Grace preach from a lot of different versions of the Bible. There, last count, there are over 16 English versions of the Bible that are currently in print, and my first illustration is going to be from one of the old and golden KJVs. Those three letters are the common English abbreviations for different versions of the Bible. And unless any of you are fluent in ancient Greek, what you need to know is that we look at these different translations so that when you hear the phrase, be Berean, being Berean simply means it's an Acts 17.11 reference that says... You should, no matter who's up here, you should be checking to make sure that what we say is squares with what God has written in his word. And so there is wisdom in looking at different versions because sometimes the translation from that ancient Greek can vary. And it's really, really helpful at times to see how that might land. It may be, it's helpful for me, hopefully that it, you know, It'll be helpful for you, but that's what those three letters are all about. So let's get started. Show of hands. How many of you are familiar with the phrase, a straight betwixt two? There aren't an awful lot of pieces of the old King James that just drilled into my head, but when John gave me my text assignment for this, Many of you know I like reading through the New Testament every 90 days. I've been doing it for ages. And my reading that morning was Philippians 1. And in Philippians 1, in verse 23, Paul in the KJV, which is where I first came across that phrase, says the following. In 21, he declares, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know it's hard to believe that we don't spend an awful lot of time together as staff and elders and so forth choreographing exactly what you guys get on a morning. 
But I can tell you that I had no idea that Richard was going to finish the John MacArthur book we've been doing in Foundations. And the last sentence of that book is essentially the, the highlight reel of my text this morning. And my sitting down and reading my verses for this morning was at the, right after I had read these verses. They all dovetail together, including what Stephen had to say. It's just remarkable. In verses 23 and 24, he says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, I abide in the flesh, which is more needful for him. Nope. For you. We've heard all the reasons why Paul might feel that way and we might not. You probably have heard them too. There's quite a list of reasons laid out for us when John gets to it in chapter 10. I mean, it's a remarkable list of things that Paul endured in order to to stay true to his calling. Historically, we as Americans have the softest, most pampered existence in the history of all of Christianity. I go as far as to say all of humanity. But over time, this has resulted in a steady erosion of complete and utter dependence on God and God alone. That may be hard to hear, but without reservation, Paul flatly declares that he'd rather be in heaven with Jesus. For him, it was a dilemma. His straight betwixt two. Why did he feel that way? And if most of us are dead honest, we don't feel that way. Well, that's the big question I'm hoping to answer as we go through this morning's text. So let's pray and dive into it. Father, I pray that the words that I'm about to share glorify you. And that will be helpful and bring joy to those that are going to hear it. And some of it's going to be, frankly, uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to say it. But I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves again? No. We are giving you a reason to be proud of us so that you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Like his words to the Philippians, Paul sees staying alive as for their benefit. He also sees attempting to persuade anybody to believe as hard work and, get this, a fearful responsibility to the Lord. Now, he's convinced that God would agree with him, and he hopes that the Corinthians agree as well, but make no mistake, the one thing of those two that's most important to him is what God thinks. When we evaluate our progress as Christians, our sanctification, which is just another church word for saying, how much do you look like Jesus? 
right? Are you making any progress? There were at least three things that I saw in verse 11 that jumped out at me. First of all, it's hard. Sharing your faith is hard, which in part explains why so few even try. I said it earlier, we in America have grown soft, hypersensitive about almost everything, so easily offended it's ridiculous. We're so concerned about what people might think of us that instead of working harder to figure out how to share our faith, we say nothing when we're provided a divine opportunity. It's right there in front of us, and we take a pass. Rejection hurts. If you're in sales, you know all about rejection hurting. But you know, simply to leave those opportunities to someone else, like it's someone else's responsibility, should be shameful. Rejection hurt Paul for sure, not just emotionally. He just didn't have to deal with the fact that, oh, man, you hear what they're saying about me? They stoned him. Stoned him. I suspect that if we were in jeopardy of being stoned, it would give plenty of us pause. But that's not the case here. It's not some optional, maybe if it might come up, I'll think about maybe sharing. It, that's not the deal. He's considered it a fearful responsibility. That's a heck of a phrase. It's not fearful in the way we tend to think of the word fear or fearful. If you have a Holman translation, which is the one I generally tend to use, that there's a great note next to the word fear, fearful. And it says this. No single English word conveys every aspect of the word fearful in this phrase. The meaning includes worshipful submission, reverential awe, and obedience and respect to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Fearful, that's what we got. It's got to include all of that for you to get it. Now, that's what Paul was thinking when he was compelled to share. Partially reverential awe. Part he was doing it out of thanks and gratitude. But it was always a had to. He had to share just like he had to keep breathing to stay alive. It was something that he just simply had to do. Now, I can't say that, not honestly. I do think about it more now than I ever have in my life, but I'm not in a straight betwixt two. Am I more heavenly minded than I ever been? More kingdom focused now than when I first made my professional play? Absolutely. Am I somewhat less tied to the things of this life? Without a doubt. But would I rather be in heaven with Jesus right this second? I can't say that, can you? It's not the thing that's driving me. I'm not in a straight betwixt two, and I think I have a, that's a problem. I'll have more to say about that, believe me. Are we, are we commending ourselves in verse 12 to you again? No. As John pointed out last week, by all accounts, Paul was not a stylish or a charismatic speaker. He just wasn't charismatic. Even Paul didn't think he was an impressive presenter. But Paul is questioning the sincerity of those who brag about their spectacular ministry. Wondering out loud if their sincerity in this way. What about their heart? Do they believe any of the things that they're saying? 
Are they genuinely interested in glorifying God? Or are they just interested in being impressive and benefiting from all of the adulation that they're getting? There's a fellow named Henry, Henry Blackaby who was without question one of the dullest, most boring people I have ever heard in my life. If you know who Henry Blackaby is, you know I'm not lying. <laughs> and he was just a completely unimpressive speaker. He was a modern day Paul. In my mind, he was one of the most important Christian teachers of the late 20th century. Why? Because of what he taught. It wasn't impressive, and I have to tell you, half the time I was like, stay awake. There are so many quotes, but I settled on this one. Some people can be so disoriented to God that when he begins to work around them, they actually become annoyed at the interruption. <laughs> That's bold. You got to give it to the guy. But it's teaching like this that are desperately needed, and they're gonna, it's going to be needed until the Lord returns. God is at work, and we should be excited. He's at work here at Grace and at that building across the way. It's a fact. You can feel it. So, are you excited about that, or does it annoy you? Is what God is doing here messing with your plans for the next three years? I'll tell you what, it's messing with mine. Sherry and I had plans. Growing race, it's coming up. It will interrupt what you were thinking. It's messing with mine, and some people would say, that's crazy, why are you worried about that? Well, because God was at work. Because when, here's, here's the thing, even the Corinthians thought that Paul was crazy. And if they did, Paul didn't care. His primary priority for staying alive was what? To glorify God. After glorifying God, what was number two? Seeing what needed to be said for whose benefit? His? He was getting beaten. It wasn't for his benefit, it was for their benefit. Who else was like this? Not a trick question. Jesus, of course. Jesus had a fanatical set of priorities. We cannot say definitively whether Paul actually ever witnessed Jesus physically. But he learned from those who had, and then he wrote for them and for us and modeled those priorities the best he could. I have to tell you, it's hard to imagine what might happen here in Bainbridge if we had Jesus or Paul's kind of fanaticism each and every day. Verse 14. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive this new way of life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Well, 
there's the gospel in summary, right? It's one of John's favorite verses, Galatians, uh, Galatians 2.20. I mean, I love the way the New Living Translation begins verse 14. Because you're my, if you're following along in your own Bible, it may say that for Christ's love compels us. Well, I love that too, truthfully. But in the original, it misses Paul's conclusion to what he had just said. He was essentially saying whether he's out of his mind for God or of sound mind for them, he didn't really care one way or the other. Either way, it didn't matter. What mattered was that Christ's love was controlling him. That Christ's love be in control. Not every once in a while, all the time. If this was one thing that, if there was one single thing that I could change about Roy, it would be this. For Christ, Christ's love to control me, not some of the time, completely. No longer living for self at all, but to glorify God for the benefit of who? Others. Essentially living out the greatest commandment and the second that Jesus gave us in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. You guys know it, but this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. And what's the second? To love your neighbor. One more quote that I found from Henry Backerby, which is especially relevant at this point, and that is this. God has a right to interrupt your life. He is Lord. When you accepted him as Lord, you gave him the right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. Ask yourself this this morning. No matter what anybody thinks of you, can you say without any hesitation that the highest priority of your life is to glorify God and for Christ's love to control you completely, welcoming any interruption he can think of anytime he wants? That is rough stuff. In Colossians 2.20, which... I hid also while I was preparing for this. Paul put it this way in Colossians 2.20. If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to it? We began this morning with Paul having a dilemma. He was in a straight betwixt two. And the big question was, why aren't I? Why aren't you? While driving to Cave Group a few weeks ago, Sherry asked me a question. Why is it so difficult for us to prioritize what God expects from us? I truthfully don't remember exactly what I said. It was probably something lame. But at, at the time, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I just couldn't. I believe prioritizing what God expects from us is directly tied to the answer to to Paul's dilemma that can be summed up in the following two questions that you'll see on the screen. When did we stop longing for heaven like Paul? And when did people thinking we were crazy for prioritizing God's glory become embarrassing to us? 
Now, you are certainly welcome to disagree, but I venture to say it started about 150 years ago in the 19th century. Because it was about then that advances in science, medicine, and physical comfort slowly and inexorably have eroded our complete and utter reliance on God and God alone. Each generation a little less reliant than the last. Sort of like the frog in that high school experiment. I'm fairly certain they don't allow that experiment any longer, and this is Family Worship Sunday, so I had to struggle to figure out how to get this one out. But I'm going to say to you that that frog had no idea what was happening. And I contend that we have lost our longing for heaven and our need and our compelling need to glorify God like our needing to breathe and live for the benefit of others just like that frog. Ever so slowly. What a casting crown say, slow fade, right? And before you know it, a century has gone by and a couple of generations had passed, and no one realizes that we had replaced our reliance on God with passions primarily focused on us and our comforts and what I want and the things I want to get out of this life before it's all over and done. Is there anything evil about that? Not a thing. Is it what Paul felt? I doubt it. Why aren't we nearly as passionate and fired up about glorifying God as Paul? Why aren't we in a straight betwixt two? Like Blackaby's quote earlier, I'm figuring this might sting a little bit, but it seems pretty darn obvious to me. It's because glorifying God and living primarily for the benefit of others isn't as important to us as the other things that get going on in our life. It's just that simple. We prioritize, John likes to say this, we prioritize the things that matter to us. Me, you, all of us. What matters to you is what you will prioritize. I promise, if you evaluate what you have lined up for the next week, it's mostly about you, your career, your family, your this, your that. I've been a Christian for the better part of over a half a century, and it took me preparing for this message to realize that why I wasn't uncomfortable. Why am I so comfortable? Why won't I depend solely on the Lord and glorifying him? And I'll tell you, it's because my eyes and my ears and all that I do are saturated with God's creation instead of him. Creation over creator. Those advances in science and medicine and comforts are all fantastic, but they've robbed me and probably you of what is necessary to please God like Jesus did and like Paul attempted to do. And just like that unfortunate frog, I don't think most of us have realized that it was happening. So why do any of us stay alive after we surrender our lives to Christ? How do we begin truly desiring a heavenly home the way Paul did? I think back in Philippians chapter 1, Paul gives us a good reason. 
Let's go back there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, right after the verses, beating it straight betwixt two, Paul declares why he believed he remained alive rather than departing to be with the Lord. So he could what? Continue to help all of them grow and experience what? Joy in their faith. There's an admirable pursuit. I'll confess, I'm not there yet. Despite an hour with him every morning, I promise you by mid-afternoon, sometime sooner, I have lost a plot. There's something that someone did, something that I did. It really doesn't matter. I'm not blaming anybody else. I'll throw a shoe, and what happens? Somebody will cut me off or whatever, and I will not be thinking about glorifying God in that moment. And I don't think either you aren't either, so don't look at me. Some days, however, some days, I make it all the way to bedtime, having maintained some semblance of prioritizing the Lord and heavenly priorities, looking, can, looking, have a couple of incidents where you can have an act of kindness, some random thing that you had a, a, you know, a divine appointment and you answered the bell. You saw it, you actually shared, you actually went out of your way, you got yourself in a pickle with something else because you spent too much time here with fill in the blank and you get all the way to bedtime and it was hard, it was hard. Maybe there was some rejection involved, but at the end of the day, it felt great. Those are better days. Not easier days. Because you can get in trouble if you haven't done what you were supposed to do at work. <laughs> okay? I mean, I'm just going to keep it real, okay? These things aren't some, some, some zero game where you do that and everything's going to come out yippy-skippy. Right, the fact that her matter remains is you. There, are, there may be some consequences to you to answering a divine opportunity. It may not all work out all great, but is God being glorified? Is that absolutely certain? And are, is what you were doing for the benefit of others not necessarily for your benefit? That's an indication that you're on the right track. That's where you can literally know that sanctification is a real thing. That from the moment that you gave your life to Christ, you are now prioritizing kingdom things, glorifying God being number one. And I want to be very clear about this. This is not some pastoral thing. This is not on John or me, or any of the other guys. This is everyone's priority. All of us should want to be reflecting Jesus, and which means that his priorities should be our priorities. So where am I going to wrap this up? Head, what is God doing around you? I already told you. Growing grace. He's doing something here. But what's he doing immediately around you? He's doing something. And my question for you this morning is, are you actively looking to see what he's doing? 
Is that a priority for you? Are you willing to take any risks whatsoever to join him in whatever that is? One of the lines you are going to see, if you haven't seen it already, as part of the Growing Grace campaign, is it's not what God wants from you. It's what God has for you. In any sacrifice that's made for him, he is glorified. And he has something for every single one of us. Do you actually believe that? And heart's a little bit tough, but do you care? We prioritize what we care about. Do you care enough about what God is doing to do something about it? That's the first tenet of Blackaby's experience in God. God is always doing something. The second tenet, for any of you who have been through it, is that he has invited you to join him. And the third, will you join him? And if you do, get ready, because I promise you're going to be making some changes. Your life will radically change. Hands, what are you waiting for? One of the hardest things for us humans to do, me included, is to admit what? We're wrong. That somehow or another we might be wrong. For some of us, it's a lot harder than for others. That would be me. Okay? What's the second hardest thing? After admitting it, what? Making the required changes. Again, I, I just said it. I've said it three times at least. We prioritize what matters to us. So, does finding out what God is doing matter to you enough to make some changes? You want some help with that? I can promise you, Pastor John, myself, any of the guys, elders, any of us, <laughs> ain't none of us that are killing this, okay? We're, God's still working on us. But we would welcome the opportunity to join you in your struggle so we can help each other be better soldiers for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I, I just, it, the, your willingness to use me in any way is, is just, it, it's, it's one of the great joys of my life. And I'm, I'm grateful that you've, you've shared this with me, and I hope that I've shared it in a way that is helpful and meaningful to, to those that are hearing it, and that it might just disrupt somebody's understanding of your expectations enough for them to consider it. Love you, Lord. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.